Good morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. While you turn there, I want to say thank you to Dr. Allen and the president's office for the invitation to be here. Uh, It's an honor to preach before so many who taught me the word as a doctoral student, so many whom I get to teach as a professor now, and so many uh, close friends and colleagues that I work with every day. This is a joy. Mark 10, starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, the Son of Man, to be a ransom for many, many of whom are in this room. Son of God, we thank you for giving us these words to live by. And Spirit, we pray that you would help us to live by them. We need them. We pray all these things in the great and glorious name of Jesus. Amen. You probably do not know the name Minty Ross. Araminta Ross was a slave in the 1800s. She was a slave in Maryland. She was born a slave, was raised a slave, and lived as a slave into her 20s. She was beaten as a slave. Minty Ross came to be known for absolute true greatness. And why is that? Minty Ross found her own freedom from slavery. Minty Ross, she lived in Maryland, and she decided that after reading the New Testament, she should flee her slave masters. She should flee them. So what she did was she made a 90-mile trek to the state of Pennsylvania. She made the 90-mile trek through uh, th- through marshlands, through forests, escaping slave catchers all the way. And she finally found her freedom in the state of, state of Pennsylvania. But once she got to the state of Pennsylvania and gained her freedom, she couldn't live with herself. She could not remain there knowing that her friends and her family members and so many were still in slavery back in Maryland. And so she made the 90-mile trek back because she knew the way. And over the course of her life, she helped 70 slaves that she knew get out of slavery through what we now know as the Underground Railroad. And then later on, she served with the Union Army and helped over 700 more slaves gain their freedom. 
Minty Ross was the name she was given at birth, but you know her as Harriet Tubman. Why, was Harriet, why has Harriet Tubman come to be known as truly great? It's because though she was a slave, she had been set free, and though she had been freed, she used it to become a servant of all. True greatness is found in free slaves. True greatness is found in free slaves. The passage we're in, Mark is telling his narrative, and he is beelining to the cross. This narrative, up until this point, has been shooting like a missile directly to Jerusalem, directly to the cross. Three times in the context before this, in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, right before this passage, we get Jesus predicting he's going to die, and on the third day he will rise again. Right before this passage, starting in verse 32, we get the third prediction from Jesus where he's telling his disciples, my ministry is about the cross. And right after this passage, they will walk into Jerusalem. And three times right before this passage, we get the disciples asking about greatness. He's talking about the cross. They're talking about greatness. This is the third time where they ask about greatness in light of him talking about the cross. This is the passage that we get. So we're gonna see a couple different sections of this passage. The first is the request of James and John. The second is the ransom of Jesus. The request of James and John, the ransom of Jesus. Let's look at the request. Starting in verse 35, James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said to him, teacher, we want you to do, look at this prepositional phrase, for us, whatever we ask of you. What a backward request. He's the master. He is the one who is the Lord of the universe. He's the son of man. And here they are. I mean, you don't talk about this. You don't talk this way with anybody. You don't go up to anybody and say, hey, I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. That's just a strange request. And here they are making it to the son of man. And Jesus, being the wise teacher that he, that he is, if anyone asks you, hey, I want you, to, I want you to do a really, really big favor for me, you don't just automatically say, sure. What do you say? Well, tell me what the favor is first, and then I'll do it for you. Maybe, right? Jesus asks a simple question. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus is a wise teacher. He's not going to immediately give in. He's going to ask, well, what do you want me to do? And that's what he does. And then in verse 37, they say to him, here's the request of James and John. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Man, they are sly, aren't they? Mark has already told us what their heart is. Their heart is for them. This was a request for them. We want you to do for us, but they are sly. We want to sit one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory, Jesus. This is about your glory. This isn't about us. This is about your glory, Jesus. But man, their request for themselves is only veiled in praise for him. It is not true praise for him. Now let's remember, they've actually seen the transfiguration by this point. They've seen his glory. They know what his glory looks like and they want a part of it. They want greatness by proximity to him. They want to get close to him. They want something here. They want what we all want, which is true greatness. And they're trying to get it by proximity. So they want to cozy up to him, but they veiled it in praise for him about his glory. 
And seminary community, I think we do this way more often than we think. We have requests for ourselves that are veiled in praise for him. I can just tell you, whenever I was a master's student, I had a lot of requests that were all about me that were veiled in praise for him, right? Things like, man, Lord, I, I'm tired of working at a bank. I want to be in a ministry position where I can influence people for your name, Jesus. I want to influence people for your name. I want people to be hanging on my every word the way I hang on John Piper's every word, right? I just, I love learning from this man. I want to, I want to teach and I want to lead the way he does. It's not a bad thing to want to teach and to lead, but it was about my influence and I was veiling it in terms of for your namesake, Jesus. I remember asking the Lord, like, God, I know I need discipleship. I know I need to learn what it looks like to obey. But when he gave me a mentor who wasn't all that prominent, I was like, I don't actually know if I want to be discipled anymore. What I really wanted is just proximity to someone that I perceived to be great. I didn't want discipleship. It was a a prayer that was veiled in praise and obedience language, but it was actually all about proximity and greatness. So they do exactly what we do, don't they? They veil a request for themselves and praise for him. And if you want to know what Jesus' response is in verse 38, I would just encourage you, you can go out and go ahead and pull out your phone. If you want to pull out your phone, go ahead. Pull up your favorite GIF searcher and just type in SMH. That's Jesus' face right now. He is shaking his head like, what in the world? All right, all right, let's, let's start over here. This is 38, okay? Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking here. You do not understand what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Jesus says, I'm the son of man. I'm going to the cross. Do you have any idea what that's going to be like? You want to sit in my glory, but you don't want any of the guts. You don't want any of the pain. Do you know the cup that I'm going to drink? Do you know the baptism that I'm, I have coming for me? He's been telling them about it three times. He's predicted it. And he's, th- this language of the cup and the baptism, that's just Old Testament Isaiah language of suffering and death, the cup of suffering, the baptism, the drowning in the waters of death. You able to die with me, he says. And if we have John 15 in the back of our minds, remember John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, you can do nothing apart from me. Then their response is all the more staggering because what do they say? We are able. Ugh. I mean, their heart is on full display, full sufficiency they think they have. And here's what he says back. Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. You will suffer. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Here we have the Son of Man in his humanity saying, hey, that's not mine to grant. That's the Father's. And he has prepared someone for it. But you want something without the preparation. There was a moment in seminary when my first year, I was applying for every internship. I was applying for every ministry position I could find. 
I was applying for youth pastor positions, lead pastor positions, internships with faculty, internships with the president. I even at one point sent a, a, an email to a pastor. I was at a really large church, and unfortunately, there was kind of this scale of pastors. There was like the top dog, and there was like a second layer and a third layer. And I knew like, hey, I, no one knows me. I'm not going to go for the top dog. I'm not going to go for the second dog. I'm going to go for like the third level. I emailed the third level guy and was like, hey, can I just shadow you? I'm not even asking to be paid. I'm not asking for your time. I just want to shadow you. And he said, hey, I'm sorry, I don't have the time. My intern, though, he'll disciple you. And I was like, the best I can get is the intern? Like, what in the world? That's my whole first year of seminary. And then my second year, one of my good friends followed, followed, he didn't follow me, but he came to to Southern Seminary where I was. He, He came from college. I was a year ahead of him. He came, and by the first day of class, he had an internship with the president, President Al Mohler. Within a couple months, he had not just had the internship, he had been promoted. He had been promoted and gotten like a paid position with Al Mohler, which was like a huge deal, right? And not only was it a paid position, he was gonna be Al Mohler's personal librarian, sitting in the basement of his home, managing that wonderful library. And this verse wrecked me like a ton of bricks because I was jealous. There was this jealousy and resentment that he had gotten this position that anyone would have wanted, and I desperately would have wanted. And this verse taught me he's been prepared for it. I didn't want a seat next to the Son of God at the right hand. I just wanted a seat next to Al Mohler's right hand, right? (laughs) (laughs) But even those positions, God is preparing some people for them and not others. And he had not prepared me for it. He had prepared Matt for it. He hadn't prepared me for it. And I was led not to sulk, but to be grateful for Matt and that he had done something in Matt's life he hadn't done in my life. I didn't know what it was, but apparently he had been prepared and I hadn't. My challenge to you today is that there's probably someone of whom you are jealous. They might be in this room. Be grateful for that person and be grateful for the way that the Lord has orchestrated their life for whatever they have that you don't. It's actually his kindness and his goodness to you and to them. And of course, lest we think that this is just a James and John problem, this is not just James and John. This is all 12 of the disciples. We see the disciples become indignant that James and John are making this request. They become indignant. They are furious. C.S. Lewis tells us that The more pride we have in ourselves, the more we dislike it and grow disdain for others when we see it. The same pride that's in James and John is lying at the heart of all 10 of the other disciples. Unless you think that you are any different than these disciples, you're not. Some of you might know the name Dennis Rodman, if you're old enough in this room. Dennis Rodman was a basketball player in the 80s and 90s. Dennis Rodman came to be known for his antics, for his on-the-court antics and off-the-court antics. Every game, he came out with a new color of hair with a new design in it, right? He was always getting in fights, always kind of throwing his arms and going crazy. Off the court, it was just the Dennis Rodman show. I mean, 
He was constantly missing practice, constantly even missing games because he was partying in Las Vegas. The whole team kind of had to negotiate around Dennis Rodman. It was just all about Dennis Rodman. So much so that at one point in the 90s, he declared that he was gonna get, get married on Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago. And it was this huge publicity event. Only he showed up as the bride, fully dressed in the bride's gown, not in the groom's. This is Dennis Rodman that we know. What you probably don't know is that when he started his career, he had all of the talent and no, none of the ego. His coach, Chuck Daly, said of Dennis Rodman when he started his career, he was an absolute unicorn. Because by the time you get to the NBA, you've got enough talent that you have developed somewhat of an ego. You care about your stats. You care about how many rebounds you get or points or whatever. And Chuck Daly said, not Dennis Rodman. When he started in the league, there was none of that. You could not find someone who worked as hard as he, as he did, had as much talent as he did, but cared nothing about what the stat sheet showed. You couldn't find it in the NBA except for Dennis Rodman. Now, here's the deal. I think we have a lot of Dennis Rodmans in this room. You might be Dennis Rodman in 1986. You might be Dennis Rodman in 1990. You might be Dennis Rodman in 1996. We have a lot of Dennis Rodmans in this room. The fact that all 12 of the disciples are fuming mad shows us that this is not an irregular instance. This is common. The pride and the request from James and John is the pride and the request from all of us. We all want greatness. We all have this cancer, this toxin of pride sitting in the well of our hearts. And whether it shows up in our lives or shows up in someone else's life, we will, that the pride will come out. We will notice it and the pride will come out. This is not just the two, James and John. This request of James and John is the request of all 12. We all want greatness. And in response to this request of James and John, we get the ransom of Jesus. The first whole section of this passage is the request of James and John. The second section of this passage is the ransom of Jesus. Look at how the Savior calls them, verse 42. Jesus called them to him, almost like a coach saying, hey, get in the huddle, get in the huddle, come on, let's talk. He called them to him, they gather around him, and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's teaching about the way of the world. We don't have to go far to find instances of this. You can insert whatever political leader you want. I'm not going to say which political leaders come to my mind, but you have political leaders that come to your mind when you think about the way of the world and the lording of the world. But we also see it in movies. Our world knows what this looks like. Why is he called Lord Vader, Darth Vader, the, vil the greatest villain of all? It's because he takes the force and he crushes people with it. He lords his authority over people. I don't want to be in Scar's kingdom. He's a domineering Lord. I want to be in Mufasa's or Simba's. He who shall not be named is an image of this dark lording. I think of the warden in Shawshank Redemption, right? Who just constantly keeps his thumb on his subjects and constantly keeps his thumb on his prisoners and constantly keeps his thumb on his staff. Unless you think this is just the way of the world, why is Jesus saying this to his disciples? One of those disciples was Peter. And the same verb that we get for lording, 
Peter uses in 1 Peter 5, charging pastors. Be careful that you do not domineer over those in your care, but set an example for them. Though this is the way of the world, it creeps awfully close to the church. It creeps awfully close. You might not be Lord Vader crushing people with the force, but you might be harsh whenever you get into a leadership role. You might be cunning. You might be manipulative. You might joke with people in a way that just reminds them, hey, I'm the one in charge and you're not. You might be passive aggressive with them. This way of the world that Jesus is describing is actually a way that's far too close to home. And there's a reason why he's saying, saying this to his disciples. Because every one of us in this room, no matter if you're a freshman at Spurgeon College or a doctoral student getting ready to graduate, you need to hear, it shall not be so among you. The church is a different kind of place. Jesus is being a good leader and he's putting his foot down. It shall not be so among you. There is no tolerance for it. There is no place for that in this place. But he's actually gracious too. Let's look at what he says next. It's, he doesn't just tell us what not to do. He tells us what our life should look like. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now notice here, this is a little bit surprising to me. This request of James and John, this prideful request for greatness and for proximity to glory, 